It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 7th, 2017, the DACA Attacka edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is here in D.C. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. So and glad to be here. I'm so glad you're here. And John Dickerson is back and is also here in D.C. Hello, John. Where are you back from? Oh, man. I'm so happy to be back. I'm back from Ireland, which is... Oh, that's right. I forgot oh, you were man. going there. Was it really lovely? Oh, it was great. The oh, West good. Coast of Ireland, all the people, I just, I can't thank the entire country of Ireland enough for all the good things it did for uh, me and my family. That's so, so great. great. That's amazing. Oh, I'm very jealous. I think that Atlas of Pure should have an Ireland correspondent. Everywhere you turn, there is wonder and, uh, I mean, everywhere you turn. And someone speaking with the best accent ever. Yes. Yeah. And like, I know. Uh, you can spend a day having a conversation about Pete. Uh, anyway, so. Uh, and if they don't have a white, uh, uh, an Ireland correspondent, I would like to be we will, an Ireland you correspondent. Can, you, that can be your next job uh, when you're tired of facing the nation. You can face the ocean. On this week's GapFest, President Trump ends DACA, kind of, sort of, in a maximally heartless, minimally effective kind of way, then have President Trump and the Democrats just broken the legislative logjam that Congress faced in September? And then can North Korea be stopped? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And of course, we have an announcement about our live shows. On October 25th in Chicago at the Merle Reskin Theater, we will be doing a live gab fest going to be a great show we we're working on a super we have awesome a guest. super awesome guest Maybe we're expecting we'll to, to have you, next week you may want to you may want to preemptively buy your tickets just to make sure you get to see that super awesome guest so october 25th live in chicago please join us it's gonna be a super show and then in boston on december 6th we do one of our favorite shows of the year our conundrum show we're going to do that live at the wilbur theater again tickets at slate.com slash live and that has a special double bonus, which is that you get a They Might Be Giants concert thrown in for free. They Might Be Giants is going to be our house band for the night, and they're going to open for us and then play throughout the show appropriately, play appropriate songs, songs appropriate for the conundrums that, that you're going to be posing. So, Can we take out the word appropriate? I feel like it's such an unfun word, and you're describing uh, such a fun event. Fitting. or Fitting. Fitting. Yeah, how about that? It'll be inappropriate. Hopefully, they'll be inappropriate, <laughs> um, but they'll be fitting. They're going to be fun. Those guys are just lively as the Dickens, and it's going to be incredibly great sharing the stage with them. So again, tickets at slate.com slash live. We hope to see you in Chicago and in Boston, maybe both. President Trump and his rather gleeful Attorney General Jeff Sessions rescinded the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals, the 2012 Obama policy that allowed undocumented aliens brought to the U.S. as children, folks who had lived exemplary lives, to work and live in the U.S. without fear of deportation. The president didn't exactly end it so much as he introduced massive uncertainty into it. Uh, DACA will gradually slide out of, of favor, out of legality. New applicants are no longer being accepted. And starting in March 2018, DACA status holders are much more eligible for deportation unless Congress acts, which is what the president urged them to do. Um, Emily, so the president claimed that... Uh, the, he had to do this because it had been an illegal executive action and they were about to get sued. Is that true? Well, uh, no, not in any literal sense, but it's also not wildly um, made up in the sense that 
When President Obama, after President Obama signed the order for DACA, he also expanded it to include parents and other close family members of the Dreamers. And that order was challenged in court, and the Obama administration lost at the Fifth Circuit. This is a decision that the Supreme Court then split four to four about, affirming the Fifth Circuit decision, but not issuing its own opinion. And the logic of the Fifth Circuit was essentially that um, the Obama administration had overreached, that this was not a form of acceptable prosecutorial discretion, which is what Obama claimed and what other presidents have done in extending deferred deportation to groups of people, like domestic violence victims, for example. So instead, the judges said, no, you went too far. You created a brand new policy, and you either needed Congress to show up and do this, or at the very least, you should have done what's called notice and comment rulemaking, which is when you go through the whole kit and caboodle of like, everyone responding, etc. So that's the argument that there was executive overreach here. And what was happening was that 10 Republican state attorneys general were threatening to sue over DACA in the same court that the Obama administration lost in. And apparently, Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, was saying that he wasn't going to defend DACA against that challenge. And that would have put the Trump administration in a political bind. Legally speaking, they could have waged the whole thing as a fight in court. But then you have, you know, Trump somehow having to order some other part of the Justice Department to go around Jeff Sessions to oppose Republican attorneys general. John, why is the Trump base so eager to end DACA of all things? These are people who are by definition not criminals, who are productive members of society. What What is the eagerness to make this an issue? So as a political maneuver, you could see him rushing into this because he needs a win on something that's important to his base. But this is a little bit more complicated because he, there was this timing aspect where uh, – and I want to ask you, Emily, about the balance of powers here question um, – but – there was this – it was forced on him a little bit. So if it weren't forced on him – He would have let it go. Right? Would he have let it go? Because he's got other fish to fry. He's got other stuff going on and we'll talk about that and in another topic. And he does seem ambivalent. And he does seem ambivalent and it's not uh, an issue the way, say, the wall is with his base. Now, look, there um, – uh, the notion of um, – I'm not, I'm not suggesting that the core Trump base, the 35 percent, um, is not against DACA – particularly the way in which Obama uh, did it. I mean, that for them actually inflames it a little bit worse because this is the like root of his lawlessness, breaking the rules of the presidency to do what he wants, which we should take an aside and just note that that's actually what they would like the president to do, which is use the power of the presidency to be an action president on behalf of the ideas that they do want. So it gets a little muddled. But so I don't think as a political matter, it's it's as clean a shot as some other immigration related things. But I mean, generally, to your original purpose, the idea is basically these kids, while they didn't do it themselves, their parents did something illegally and their kids have benefited as a result of it. And why should they get theirs when we're not getting ours? You know what really interested me about the politics? So Jeff Sessions makes this announcement. He's the go-to person for this, for the Trump administration. He gets up and says what he's been saying in the Senate for years. These are illegal aliens. There is nothing compassionate about not enforcing our immigration laws, period, the end. This was Jeff Sessions' identity, one of his primary identities as a politician was to stand with the hard right on immigration. That was not where most of the Republican Party right. was, right? This is a person who, when he proposed an amendment to the last comprehensive immigration reform, nobody voted for it in <laughs> committee except for him. He was right. by himself. Then you have this response. It was pretty bipartisan in its condemnation. Why is that when Congress had failed multiple times to pass DREAMer Act? Because you've now created this class of people and they're productive citizens and they're super sympathetic and the country doesn't – most of the country does not really have the heart to expel them, which is what we're talking about doing. Right. People who were raised here, who speak the language, who are Americans in everything but their papers, as right. Obama said. That's – it's harder to dislodge something than it is never to get it started to begin with. And so whatever you think about Obama's, you know, exercises of power, he has changed the facts on the ground in a way that has changed the politics. But the, also, by the way, this notion that uh, Jeff Sessions said, as you quoted, there is nothing compassionate about the failure to enforce immigration laws. 
Actually, that just doesn't make sense. No, of course there is something sense. compassionate. You may say to that the that people who are not being yes, deported. Of course, of course. It's like like it's the definition of compassion when you give a stay of a law that would hurt somebody. Now you may argue that that compassion hurts other people and have yada yada yada, but you can't say it's not. It's not, that it just isn't without compassion at all. So but that's just... I, okay, a couple of points. One is, I do think that the worst thing you can do in the world is make someone fearful for no purpose or to create uncertainty in their life and and danger in their life for no purpose, which is what it seems to me that the, the president is doing with this or Jeff Sessions is doing with this. On the other hand, they Jeff Sessions is right and the president is right that Congress has been negligent and derelict in its duty on immigration. The insofar as there are laws on the books, the laws are on the books that Jeff Sessions is trying to enforce. They do say these are people who are not allowed to be here. These are people who 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 are here illegally and and have no right of residency and no right to work. And Congress has absolutely refused at every opportunity to legislate and make it possible for people to stay here or change those laws. And the very people who are stand, who are Republicans and Democrats, mostly Republicans, who are condemning what the president is doing here had failed, voted against legislation in the past, have not uh, taken action, which is their constitutional Article One obligation to act on this. And, sure. and, and so screw them, screw them for trying to put it all on Trump or put well, it all in sessions. It's and, on them. And yeah. if they get their act together, then in a sense, Trump will be proved right. It would certainly be better for the dreamers yeah. to have a legit as long as the policy solution is a viable one that lets them stay here legally and is truly compassionate because it's long term. I and mean, one of the problems with DACA was that it's two year increments, right. right? Then like Trump would be proved right. I mean, that's a very complicated question whether Congress will get its act together to do that. But there's no question that DACA was a workaround. At the same time, I do think it's important to recognize that if we hadn't had the workaround, we wouldn't be having the groundswell of support for these people that right. we're having now. Well, that's what's interesting in terms of the balance of branches and the balance of powers. And when you went, when you talked about the, the uh, notice and comment that the president and the rulemaking notice and comment that the president went around, that was initially created, that notice and comment was created as a way for Congress to say, okay, to the president, you've seized these powers, but we're going to make you put this up for notice and comment. This is it's in a previous period. It's going to take forever. Yeah. Yes, this and, is a and long time ago. <laughs> we want, you know, Congress was trying to scratch back some of its power to at least tinker with something the president was going to do anyway. But so I guess my point is that this is a part of a long story of Congress and the White House balancing and and battling for who has the power to do these kinds of things. Um, we and should we're add in moment. that in, the la in our last and current version of immigration law, Congress does it d gave what's the sorry there's a word abrogated no no arrogated like hand over power to someone else isn't it's it like obvious no the op the opposite when you deputize no delegate sorry. Yeah. <laughs> congress delegated the federal government to make all these decisions and we it is inevitable that the government cannot try to deport the millions of people who are here right. the government the federal government has to make distinctions right. about who's a priority and who's not so in that sense there was nothing remarkable about DACA, except that it was on a big scale and it was uh, announced ahead of time. And that, you know, set up alarm bells. Right, last question on this, John. Will Democrats go for trading, trading, trading dreamers for the wall? Will they try to come up with something which is like, OK, we'll give you some wall and you just have to put DACA back in place? I think no. I think they'll, their first position will be uh, there's a, the Dream Act, just passed the Dream Act. The uh, right. Doesn't the Dream Act solve this? This is the Durbin Graham bill right, that basically makes that creates puts a position. I mean, there's legislation there. There's also actually four pieces of legislation that were offered before the right, president. But they've all. Yeah, but, but they, they also can, right, can but come the, up with some like border security measure that's not the wall. I think for to, Democrats, yeah. the wall is a hill to die on. I mean, look, I I'll be proved wrong in a month. But like, I, I really think that is going to be a tough sell for them. Well, it's interesting. This will get into our Man, other conversation. The wall for the dreamers. But. But I think the Democrats at the moment don't think they have to give the wall. I yes. think they think that the country is so against this. The president is ambivalent about it. I mean, uh, I think the Democrats feel like they have a position of power here. I do wonder whether, though, in the context of other negotiation, negotiating that's going on, whether uh, the wall 
is could be used as a chip by the Democrats. Um, you know, we'll talk about the deal the president just uh, decided to make with Schumer and Pelosi over Ryan and McConnell for spending and to keep the government open. And I think the, the wall could come back in, in that in that context. Interesting. All right. Uh, coming up, by the way, we have a Slate Plus segment uh, for Slate Plus members. That Slate Plus segment, we're going to talk about the fight over Google and the New America Foundation and whether Google is untowardly influencing public policy and research on the left. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos it is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Something really weird happened on Wednesday in Washington. President Trump, in one of his, really one of his very first meetings ever with Democratic congressional leaders, agreed on the spot to a Democratic plan to tie Hurricane Harvey aid to a three-month extension of government spending bills and a three-month extension of the debt ceiling. Republicans who had wanted an 18-month deal at the most or a six-month deal at the very least were livid. That well, he Trump, did it without even telling Trump them. He agreed. totally embarrassed Ryan and McConnell. They're in at this the meeting. They're like stuck with these frozen grins on their faces. I mean, it's – John, I just explain the politics uh, oh, come of this on. to me. You want me to explain? Yes. I, well, I think you, on the one hand, it's quite simple. Well, on the other hand, it's – who knows the ways of the minds of the men in the in the Oval Office? Ryan and McConnell have screwed him recently on a variety of fronts. Whether you, you know, or he not sees passing, it that or way. he sees it. Sorry, that very well, well put. He, but he sees it that way. So he's like, "What do I owe you guys?" Um, <laughs> two, he wants a clean debt ceiling. He wants this Harvey uh, money through, and that's the like. Let's get this done and over. And I got other things to worry about. Three, we saw from the campaign, and people were expecting. You could see another road the president would have gone down in his presidency if he hadn't launched it in the way he did. And which this was, was it. And this was it, which was start with infrastructure, work with, with with Schumer, get a deal with Democrats, like be the third way kind of guy. And it's coming awfully late. There's a lot of, you know, water under the bridge. But and then now on Thursday, the president has called Schumer and Pelosi. So uh, yeah, so it's not just been that one meeting. He it called, wasn't just that one meeting. There were calls. We don't know Chuck the and Nancy. Hey, Chuck, what's up? We don't know the Nancy, nature of the. the uh, we don't know the nature of the conversations yet, but nevertheless, that's what's happening. Um, he wants to be the deal maker. I think yeah. he got tired of all the. Art- I feel like I read ten articles this week where like the deal making president has yet to make a deal, and now he made a deal, and it just so happens that he completely screwed over his own party. Did he not? Well, it depends. I mean, it's a portion of his party, the the, the conservative portion, by the way. I mean, the, the portion that he screwed over is the portion that kind of brought him to the dance, which is to say the reason they would feel screwed over is they don't want to see a clean debt ceiling increase. Secondarily, they don't want to see a debt ceiling increase, and these are related, that has Hurricane Harvey relief money tied to it because their argument is that that makes it a hostage of the Secretary of Treasury's argument is the reason you have to have the debt ceiling increase to pay for Harvey is that you can't pay for Harvey because the money won't be there with the debt ceiling. Conservatives say we got to do something about the $20 trillion debt. The debt ceiling is the way to do it. The president, as a candidate, would have agreed with that. The Freedom Caucus in the House agrees with that. But now the president is essentially undermining the Freedom Caucus, and the Freedom Caucus should be, you know, his team. So now the Freedom Caucus— Wasn't it more than the Freedom Caucus? I mean, hadn't Ryan and McConnell rejected this very deal three hours 
Well, the timeline part, yes, they wanted a longer, right. a, a longer timeline. But they were in the Senate; they were okay with keeping putting Harvey and the debt limit in the same. But that's sort of what I don't get about it. It seems like Trump could have worked with the Republicans and gotten more time and something pretty close to this. And he, instead of giving them the chance to do that, he just like ripped the rug out from under them. And that, I'm just starting to wonder how many times Trump gets to do that to the Republican leadership before they're like, well, "Hey." Well, but think of if you think of your if you put yourself in his shoes, like he's having his best day in a long time on the congressional front today. Everybody's like, "Oh my god, yes, the deal today. maker!" But like, what does he need them for? To like, what this suggests to me is tax reform, which was always a huge pipe dream, gone. Because on the other hand, actually, now that I say that, that's not right because Republicans want tax reform so. Right. Badly, badly, they'll come. They'll come back. back. No so, what. so I don't know. I mean, I guess my point with him is it wasn't going very well in the other direction, right? They got no health care. Basically, like, gar- you know, Supreme Court's the best thing, and he owes Mitch McConnell a great deal for that. But other than that, what? Why not? What? what one thing I don't understand, John, is is why is this the president? So the president says, "I want a three month deal." Democrats, "I want a three month deal." Why does that mean there's a deal? It doesn't I mean yeah, oh, yeah. McCon- McConnell yeah, yeah. and no, have to introduce the legislation. Sure, sure. They? And Paul Ryan, this is where it's going to be. This is where it's be really fascinating to watch because so Paul Ryan has to put that deal on the floor and then it would and then pass break the what's it called the, the Haster rule, rule, which is really you know they, they would tell rule. you it's not a real rule. It's a norm, which is funny in these days of breaking breaking norms. Anyway, uh, it was when Boehner broke that norm, it was a part of the case against him, which then caused him to ultimately leave. Ryan has to put it on the floor. So you can imagine this. Ryan puts it on the floor based on a deal the president has worked out with the Democrats. It passes, which gives the president his win that he wants and whatever the formula is that's going on in his strategic thinking at the moment. And then Ryan gets savaged by Steve Bannon, the president's former chief strategist, now back at Breitbart, for being a capitulating, you know, a uh, horrible person. I guess what I also think about the medium to long term of this is 2018. That's the part that I'm surprised. I guess the Trump, the notion that Trump thinks in the medium to long term or or buys the, any kind of conventional wisdom about it. Like, why should he? He won the campaign ignoring all of it. I guess there's that. But like, if, if he weakens the party sufficiently that the one house of of Congress flips in 2018. Like he well, is going to be really sorry. Why I does think. this? Why does this worsen their electoral prospects? I don't think it does because one thing there, it makes it much less likely the government's going to default. Much less likely that there'll be government shutdown. So there is that argument that he they should thank him and the Democrats for bailing them out. Except that if they could have worked this deal out as grownups and were seen to be functioning and the government and they can run it and like, yes, we can, that would be better for them, wouldn't it? Well, but it's going you know, to be a bipartisan bill. It passes. It'll be a... I guess. I mean, yeah. But also, what happens in December now? Yeah, then there's that. Because this gets us to December. Right. So what happens? So, De- right. so, so December, you still have to do a debt ceiling. You still have to do... A real government appropriations bill, right. spending bill, right? Um, yeah, and we're back these- here. This is yeah, we're back. This is a snooze bar. I mean, with this is we're back at all those same questions. Um, but and- that seems like a smart thing to worry about later if you're the Trump administration, because there'll be different pressures on the Republicans to pass something, and if not, you go make another deal with the Democrats if that doesn't seem to have totally messed things up for you. Yeah, and he's got other. Th- I mean. They still have these questions to, to to deal with. The Harvey will be out of the way. So then it'll just be, well, by then it might be funding for Irma too, but it'll then just be debt limit and, and government funding. But of course, then there are all these other bills too uh, that have to be dealt with that we'll get to. Tax reform, well, DACA, DACA, and yeah. the FAA, FAA, right, the FAA children, Children's Health chip. Insurance. Yeah. Well, so that's what's interesting in this sense, which is these issues are the ones that are constant or in our current politics have become a constant because Congress is incapable of doing the basic functions of their job. And so there are these constant precipice moments because Congress is so dysfunctional. So it's sort of amusing to think then of this other laundry list of things, which are reauthorizations. Now, this is not totally fair. There's some defense reauthorizations that have actually gone through with bipartisan support that Congress has dealt with. So you could imagine actually on something like CHIP, People getting together, also on healthcare, Alexander and Murray seem to be in terms of shoring up uh, the exchanges and making sure that, although that'll that'll be its own battle. But I guess my point is that if they can't do this, like getting to tax reform is going to be, it's just it's going to be impossible. Emily, just going back to the psychodynamics of of this 
deal on Wednesday. How much of it do you think is Trump? I want to get a deal. And how much of it is Trump? Trump is, as Josh Marshall, I think, wrote uh, in Talking Points Memo, is motivated by dominance and the chance to just squash and humiliate Ryan and McConnell. It was in front of him. It sat in front of him. It was right in his face. And he was like, I'm going to take that. Yeah, it does seem significant. I mean, it's a little hard to say, right? Because also he seemed to have made the decision in like a split second. But yeah, it, it and the the uh, the way the performance of it added to all of that humiliating dimension, right? That you're actually like taking people unawares, including your own Treasury Secretary. I mean, Mnuchin was also surprised and flabbergasted in the moment. You know, that's great television, right? Like this is where we go back to the idea that the president was it on TV. No, there were pictures. I meant that it's like a great performance. But I think that's a better way to say it, which is this is great television. It's it's reality television that we're watching. It's a soap opera. And I must say that I, and again, we we should note, this might be a very narrow little moment. And there may never be a second beat of this storyline. But this is what so many of the president's people who knew the president when he was a candidate had said he would do is that he likes chaos and the way to be chaotic in Washington would be to scramble the partisanship and he would be the master of the chaos and everybody would say, why is he doing it? But he would be the center of the TV show. That's right. And instead he came and ran a super base orient. Now he's still doing a lot of that. So this is not, we're not talking about a pivot here. Make no mistake. Anybody listening to this. But it's a different move. But it is a different move of the kind that, uh, that we've seen. Exactly. Right. And maybe just the like agro dominance is also about throwing people, keeping people on their toes. And I mean, he just has zero loyalty to his own party. So all the traditional ties that bind that would make this unthinkable for any other president I can think of are just like off the table because he doesn't care if these people get mad at him. They're already all mad at each other. Also, we'll see how this plays out. But I mean, after Charlottesville, a lot of us thought, what Democrat? is going to do any kind of deal with the president on anything because of the pain that their base would um, inflict. inflict on on them for doing a deal with the president. This is a little bit of a special case because it's an emergency thing. And But I guess my point is that dynamic, I think, still is in place for any thinking anybody would try to do about like whether this is the beginning of a new set of arrangements. But who knows what his response will be to the generally, I think, in his eyes, favorable responses from the media coverage, which has been, oh, my gosh, the president, like, shakes things up. He's the, you know, he's at the center of this dynamic thing that's happening, which I think for him is a is a pleasant kind of news coverage to get. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, let's move on. Kim Jong-un's North Korea last week claimed to have detonated a hydrogen bomb. In fact, not just any hydrogen bomb, but a hydrogen bomb capable of being launched on North Korea's increasingly accurate and effective ICBMs with a range that could reach the United States. The global and American response to this announcement has been chaotic and anxious. Uh, The world generally, of course, condemned it. China, which is North Korea's sole lifeline only and best friend condemned it and grumbled, uh, but you know has not done anything. President Trump, who was at the yeah, time, they did they signed on to some sanctions package? Eh, whatever. Okay. President Trump embroiled in a separate cyberbullying of South Korea. Um, he was threatening to cancel a free trade agreement that we have with South Korea. Issued some nonsensical Twitter threats to cancel all trade with anyone doing business with Kim. Uh, and also, we also had a lot of irritable condemnation, Security Council meetings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what no one seems to know is what to do. Are we going to go to war and endanger hundreds of thousands of South Korean and American troops and Japanese lives? No, no, thank you. Are <laughs> we going to do more sanctions, sanctions which haven't yet worked? And in fact, maybe even counterproductive with a country like North Korea, which seeks isolation. 
that seems to be where we're headed. Are we going to negotiate with murderous dictator who wants more isolation? Are we going to allow South Korea and Japan to develop nukes on their own and encourage them to do that? Again, that's kind of a no thanks. So, John, uh, there's that the adage that whereof one cannot speak, one must be silent. I sort of feel that way, not about North Korea, which we're going to talk about, but about policy matters. Like, maybe we shouldn't do anything. Like, maybe there are no good options, and therefore one shouldn't act. By the way, just if that adage were as in play as it is attractive, I like that notion. We wouldn't have a show. <laughs> no, could, there'd be like three or four things. <laughs> Emily could speak about legal stuff. Right. I would be. I would. It would. You would be a show with the two of you. Hello and welcome to the Slate <laughs> Silence to the Slate Mumbles. Uh, so I think the increasingly over the last month, while the rhetoric has gotten hotter from the president, and obviously the number of. I mean, this hydrogen bomb test, 6.3 on the Richter scale, and this idea that it can be married with an ICBM, I think that's true based on what I've read, that the whole tricky part now, if in fact the North Koreans are to be believed on this, which they may not be, is that, you, okay, they could fire it into the air, but then the question is whether it could come go through the reentry process, that, that that's the next and perhaps the last go tricky. up. Who cares where they come down? Right, if it's got that's a nuclear warhead. That's not my department, said right. Bernard Brown Brown. Um, Oh, that's good. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I stepped on that. It's I didn't realize. The Tom Lehrer song. He kept um, right on going. I guess my feeling in the in the last month has been that that there's a lot of posturing and basically they are trying to negotiate, both the U.S. and the North Koreans, a way to get to talks. And it involves both sides amping up their rhetoric and behavior to maximize their negotiating position and on the part of the United States to get them to the table. So that means the sanctions in the United Nations. It means putting pressure on China, which the U.S. believes is the only country that can basically get the North Koreans to sit down at the table, which is what the North Koreans want, but they want it on their terms. And that Steve Bannon was right in his, uh, in, when he let slip what is said, which is the U.S. does not have a military option in North Korea. And is not in a position to enact one, as other analysts have said. Like if they if they were poised to act, they would have to do a lot more stuff that they're not doing. And um, uh, Michael Morell, the number two former number two at the CIA, said they're about forty five to sixty days away from where they would need to be to do military. Action. Who's the they? North Korea, oh, America, or us? America, okay. America. So, on the other hand, the president's bellicose talk is aimed not necessarily at North Korea, but is aimed at China. China does not want destabilization in North Korea, which means they don't want one of several things. They don't want military action. They don't want U.S. rhetoric rattling up North Korea in a way that makes North Korea do something that invites military action. So say they put that ring of fire around Guam and one of those missiles meant to create the ring of fire actually hit Guam, then the U.S. would retaliate. China doesn't want that. It doesn't want chaos. And, and so it's this kabuki that's going on all to get negotiations to take place. And we and by the way, there are back channel conversations going on between the US and North Korea. It means the messages that are sent are opaque, but they exist. And there's obviously messages being sent through China to North Korea. So the hotter you see it getting in the rhetorical scale, I've started to sort of feel the rhetoric is meant perhaps in some ways to actually get you to the exit ramp, even though if you take it just at its face value, you would think, oh my gosh, we're in Armageddon tomorrow. I kind of think you're giving the Trump rhetoric too much credit for being thought through and strategic like i think he just sounded off i don't think he was like oh now it's a really good idea to uh threaten to end our you know to accuse south korea our ally of appeasement i think he just well, did it that is totally possible um <laughs> so I mean, i'm not I gonna i but i do think there are some things so I guess what I would say is is uh, on the China thing, for example, when he talks about like cutting off trade. By the way, if you're going to cut off trade with countries that do business with that would North be Korea, China. that would be China of North Korea's trade and our largest trading partner. But it would also be Germany, Brazil. There are yeah. other countries, so it's not going to happen. But the way it's been explained to me by administration officials is that if it sends the message to China, they need U.S. trade to happen, and they would prefer it to go along 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 the path that it's been going. So while it may not disappear fibrillations in the U.S.-China trade relations affects their domestic economy. Unless and until the Chinese realize that Trump sounding off is meaningless and then they just tune it out entirely. But I don't even understand why Why do we want to get to negotiations with North Korea? Like, what is what good does that do? We've had 25 
years of this. Yeah. The nuclear program has continued. We they've, almost they've, made a deal with them at the end of the Clinton who, administration. Well, different leaders, and who knows if that is a deal they would have stuck I to. I think they they're, would. They're, they're rational actors. I, if I, you look at what Kim Jong-un is doing, it seems totally rational yeah. what he's doing. I no, they, and, and, and I think the administration, regardless of what they say publicly, believes that he's a rational actor, and I believe that they want to get back to basically where the Clinton team was with different trade-offs, but the Clinton team was on the way. Right? Yeah, just before the basically right on the eve of inauguration. I think the goal is or the idea is that the reason you want to deny or put in you want to stop the North Korean nuclear program was a to stop North Korea from having leverage in the region, but also because they worry that that North Korea will trade the material or information to other countries, that it becomes a marketer of this stuff to get money, to get paid for it because they need money. Now, that's that's at the end. I mean, we're not even at the negotiating table. That would be yeah, that's the end of a super long, hard negotiation that would require all kinds of things to be uh, uh, overcome that we're not even there yet. But I think that is the end. That's the reason they don't want North Korea to be a nuclear um, power and why simply trying to contain it has risks that they think are worth overcoming through negotiation. Now, the question is, are those risks worth overcoming through military action? And I don't I, I don't think there's a lot of appetite for Can that. Can we bring in the Iran nuclear anti-nuclear proliferation deal here because Trump is avowedly reluctant to sign the reauthorization for this. They're making noise, even though all the other countries who signed the deal think that Iran is falling through on its promises. We claim with no evidence that it's not and seem to be on the brink of like tossing this at Congress. Congress, here's another hot potato for you or um, canceling it. And that seems to me in some ways well, first of all, it just seems really alarming on its own as a statement about the United States keeping its promises in line with the Paris Accord and the message that it sends to North Korea about the value of negotiating in the medium to long term if the next person could just rip up the agreement. Well, also, I mean, I, I think that Iran and North Korea examples are so wildly different. Iran was never close to a bomb. Iran wants to be part of the community of nations. North Korea really does not have a strong incentive. It's the way it's structured. I mean, it would, ha it would have to go undergo so many convulsions in what its economy is and how it relates to the world. Its, its goal is to be the dangerous weasel. Its goal is not to be part right, of the community we, of nations the way we, Iran is. So Iran has an incentive to negotiate. I mean, your, your point is right, Emily, that that if even if you strike a deal with North Korea, why would they trust that it's going to be enforced if we're going to or why would they trust that it's going to be held to if we're going to abandon the one with Iran? I'm just saying that the incentives were totally different. The incentives are very different. And also Iran is engaged in the world and, and needs and sanctions were much more effective. And the public opinion in Iran actually has an effect in a way that it doesn't in North Korea because there is no public opinions allowed to be expressed. And, and I agree with that. I'm just saying that if you think of these as sort of two different stages on which the United States is playing, that if you are the Iranians who the leadership who took this political risk of signing this deal, you're hanging them out to dry. And you're also saying to Kim Jong-un, like, oh, yeah, we're a really great country to negotiate. You should definitely give up your nuclear weapons for this agreement, which, like, we may change our minds about tomorrow. They would ne they will never give up their nuclear No, weapons. they won't. They're and, a nuclear state. And honestly, if, if you know, it's it, as you said, it's a rational decision they're making for I just, them. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm sorry, this is just to go back to the plots philosophy of like, deal with your friends, don't deal with your enemies. We have friends in that area. South Korea is a really good friend. Japan is a really good friend. All we should be doing is being like, let's help the South Korean economy. Let's help the Japanese economy. You know, let's try to make sure that our relations with China are really calm and, and reasonable and there are no mistakes there. And, and just not, I just think the time that you spend, this is like worrying what if, about what your old enemy in high school still thinks of you. It's like, who cares? Doesn't matter. They're living their lives. But if your old enemy could throw a nuclear bomb. Right. They're and, not going to throw a nuclear next, bomb. They aren't going to do it. Japan and South Korea are asking the United States to deal with the enemy on their border who could have a nuclear weapon. And yeah, they probably, they might not use it, but I mean, you had the South Korean defense minister saying that the U.S. should re re put tactical nuclear weapons back in South Korea. Like, they got some view that things are dangerous over there. That's not the U.S. suggesting that. And the U.S. probably wouldn't do that. Why but, is that a bad idea? I think it escalates things. <laughs> I think it's just like, and oh, then gosh. That, you, so we well, because worry. the idea is you want what the U.S. and the Secretary Tillerson tried this a couple months ago where he said very clearly to North Korea – 
We don't want regime change. We don't want re- reunification. We're not trying to take you over. Uh, a tactical nuclear weapon in South Korea would yeah. be, we're trying to take the you prob- over. And the problem with tactical nukes, as I understand it, is that you your response times are reduced. So insofar as there are mistakes, like Dr. you can Strange make a mistake love. very, very quickly. Whereas if you don't have them in the field, yeah. any response is going to have to be mm. much more considered. That makes sense. Um, it's why uh, it's why we don't have them in the backyard anymore. <laughs> but you have that in your nice gazebo. You could put one underneath the gazebo. It's true. Very warming in the winter. A little yeah. nuclear uh, uh, radiation keeps you very warm. Unfortunately, that officer that has to be down there to turn the key, it's like, that's just, you got to feed that guy. It's such a pain. That's right. He's always groaning about his family. Um, what Nikki Haley said, the North Koreans are begging for war. Was that a helpful thing to say, Emily? I think maybe not. I haven't been feeling like Nikki Haley is a super super helpful presence in all of this. I, I, you know, if you're going to have a really bellicose, saber-rattling kind of to a meaningless degree president, I like it better when Rex Tillerson shows up and plays good cop than I do when Nikki Haley just like throws more coal on the fire. What do you think? You got a lot of metaphors working. I know there. that was really painful. Someone um, is someone's uh, ears are ringing. You know, in the end, if they get to negotiations, like. It'll all seem brilliant. If they don't, it'll all seem a mess. I mean, this is essentially the madman strategy. The president and or the president plus Nikki Haley are the, mat. you know, the, oh, my God, they could do anything anytime. This escalation could lead to bungling into war or actual military action. We've got to avoid that. While the president keeps the rhetoric and the temperature high, Mattis and Tillerson do the work with the Chinese, the South Koreans, and the back channels to the North Koreans to get this to the place where it needs to be, which is talks and then talks that would be fruitful. So in that context... Sure, go ahead. Well, right. In that say context, they're asking for war. Say, yeah, say Turn anything you the want volume. over here. The problem is that you, uh, that you uh, miscalibrate. And also, I think, you, I think it's really important for those of us who are trying to report on the administration and for everything I've said that... That, you know, just because somebody in the administration says, look, we're this is our two-track strategy, doesn't mean that that's the way it's being heard or experienced on the other end. So the madman strategy relies on two parts. One, the madman, and then the, the rational guy. So Nixon, madman, Kissinger, rational guy saying, hey, you know, you got to talk to me and we got to work something out because he's crazy. And then you have Kissinger working it out and it gets worked out. So, but both things need to be happening, and and we don't know the extent to which both things are happening. You know, you want them to overread the president's desire to take military action in some ways, but how do you calibrate that? Like, you know, if there's a wolf at the door, like, I think there's a wolf at the door. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to take action. So it's obviously super high risk. All right. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're having a back-to-school a back-to-school, extremely alcoholic beverage in the Bazelon Den. Emily, what are you going to be chattering about? I want to talk about a new study that's coming out this week from researchers at the University of California, San Francisco. It's a rare piece of good news for abortion rights advocates. It's a big study of about 20,000 patients, and it compared women who got abortions in the kind of standard in-person visits in a clinic to women who got abortions through telemedicine. And that usually means that the woman herself might be at the clinic, but the doctor might be over the phone or kind of video conferenced in. And when the health outcomes of these two different kinds of patients were compared, the women who received abortions through telemedicine had the same kinds of low complication rates as the women who had an in-person visit with an abortion provider. So this is a big deal in the world of providing abortion services because it it opens the door to more um, creative ways of improving access, where if you're in a rural community and you're not and you're a doctor, um, you could have a nurse practitioner or um, another kind of healthcare provider connect you to the physician without the physician needing to be there with you. And it especially matters because there are 18 states that have banned telemedicine abortions, citing health and safety risks. So this study really flies in the face of that kind of response. And it's by Dan Grossman and, like I said, some UCSF researchers. All right. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? 
So I have both a little interesting fact, or maybe not interesting, anyway, and then a chatter. So the fact is that GPS data showed that the Earth's crust flexed under the weight of all the water from <gasps> Hurricane Harvey between one and two centimeters. What does it mean for us to movement. flex? Is that like good? Like well, you're, it, you're exercising your ankle? No. I mean, no. It, the Earth's crust can flex, but it's a sign of how much water there was, A, and then apparently the Earth's crust can flex and it's not permanent, but I mean, it could be bad if it flexed and then didn't and bounce stayed. back. But apparently it, it operates kind of like a mattress. So I think it's going to be okay. But just as a, a it doesn't do that when there's a heavy truck. It I just see. is a sign of how... Um, yes much water there was. Anyway, and then my actual chatter is about something that's happening on uh, next week. Um, it's called the New Center Project, and it's part of the No Labels Foundation. They're um, unveiling it on September 11th, and then there's a two-day uh, symposium in New York with um, where they're going to talk about these ideas. But the idea of this uh, New Center Project is ideas to recenter America. Bill Galston from Brookings and Bill Crystal from the Weekly Standard are heading it up. And it's basically two people who are, you know, at different times in their career have been severe partisans. Bill Crystal writing the memo about how to destroy Bill Clinton's attempt at universal health care. Galston worked, you know, has worked in democratic politics for a long time. And it's their effort to get together and take on the six big issues from a kind of cent center position. So immigration, trade, tax reform. Everybody should read this thing they put out, not because you would agree with the ideas, but it just seems like in this, these times, these moments now where everything is fought in such ex extreme terms, this is a it's just nice to see this happening somewhere. You're glad that I'm, people are crossing any sort of ideological exactly. divide whatsoever. May they all hold hands forever. Exactly. And it, so I realize that puts me in the difficult position of being in a kind of kumbaya goo goo moment. But I feel like that's not a bad thing to at least have on the plate of your political diet. Because right now, what is on the plate is basically all uh, pretty grim. And so if for no other reason reading this is um, – and also, by the way, when you talk to voters, there are th those that you talk to who are super partisans. And then there are those who say, you know, if both sides could just get together – and, you know, work it out and trade off and recognize that things are complex and recognize that, you know, a lot of the political conversation about policy is based on demagoguery and not based on, you know, th that's what this document seeks to. So and then finally, it's actually not a bad document to then say to people who have views that are on different parts of the spectrum to say, OK, but why is your idea better than this one? Uh just as a way of, you know, perhaps demolishing demolishing these ideas in the center. But that itself is quite useful because um, it sort of it 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 uh, it defines uh, policy to me in a way that kind of moves it out of this craziness we're in at the moment. We have a a venerable. Well, there are no venerable traditions at the GFS. We're not that venerable, but we have a we have a. You're just a pretending that we're not old, but we're we, actually old. We have a tradition that we're proud of at the GabFest, which is that. Uh, uh, our, our researcher on on his or her last day as our researcher will do a cocktail chatter. And today we have the good fortune to have Kevin Townsend, who's been our stalwart researcher for the last year or so. Kevin could have been on the show a hundred times. He could have hosted the show a hundred times. He's a incredibly smart, interesting person. As you're about to learn right now, Kevin, what is your chatter? So I'm going to take the opportunity and do Two kind of related chatters. Oh, you and John are double yeah, dipping this, well, this like extra it. bit. Go ahead, you <laughs> well, earned it. I'm prorating. I'm prorating my chatters. That's right. Based on tenure. Um, so the first quick one is the work of uh, Nikki Case, which I just discovered yesterday, actually, who I'd best describe as like an indie game designer who does these quick like 20, 30 minute explainer type things for complex systems. So I found this one. You can you can find it at ncase.me slash trust. And it's basically a way of like playing out and learning game theory in this really like simple, beautiful, fun, uh, cartoonish way. Oh, that sounds great for kids. It's perhaps. really good. Yeah, and grownups. Yeah, kids and grownups. I mean, I, I really so kids of all ages. <laughs> <laughs> kids of all ages love we game theory. We know some of them. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, I studied game theory and I studied economics, but it was still like fun and you, you learn something through it. And it's a great way of 
having this simple little fun thing. And the rest of his work, I mean, I think initially he got attention years ago for this game he created that was like a text adventure game called The Coming Out Simulator, which I actually played for the first time yesterday, which is you play as him coming out to his conservative Asian parents. And as someone who's never had that experience, it was a way of like getting invested in the decisions because you're making decisions about what to say in what moment. And he has a great little explainer talk that he gives at the Long Now Foundation about how using games to explain complex systems is a fantastic way of puncturing it in and spreading it to a broader audience. That's awesome. And I just love that. Hey, man, what a great cheddar. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. And now you're going to do chatter. another one? I think, you know. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, great. Well, on the idea of, uh, on the thing of complex systems being simply explained, I have that Neil Irwin piece in the New York Times, uh, headline of which is to understand Rising inequality, consider the janitors at two top companies then and now. Or the tale of two janitors as it started going around on Twitter. In this piece, Neil took two janitors, one uh, Marta Ramos, uh, at, who works at Apple currently, and one Gail Evans, who worked at Kodak a few decades ago. Evans rose to become an executive in the company. Marta Ramos essentially has no upward mobility within the company. She's a contractor. Wages are fairly set, and there's not really much opportunity to Apple rise. would never know what potential she has beyond what she's doing now. Exactly, exactly. And, I mean, structurally, like this is something that – this is a format that isn't too unusual to take anecdotal cases to explain something complex. But I thought it was it was a really well-done example of that and done in a way for an issue at a time that I think is really, really worthwhile right now. The structural labor problem, how we're going to – not just address inequality, but address the underlying structural problems of how we're getting to be a less and less labor intensive economy overall, and people are being left behind is a enormous problem. And, and one that I think is hugely salient right now, especially, I think our politics is not very good at dealing with these gigantic problems when there's not really a resolved way to solve them among experts. Uh, my mom's a labor economist. She literally, like, I grew up in Pittsburgh. She worked, she did her like, you know, career-making work on labor in the steel industry. And then I moved to Palo Alto and like saw sort of the oh, Rochester <laughs> Cupertino sides of it. And uh, I talk about this work with her often. And it's it's something that is a huge problem that they just do not have a solution for right now. And I think there's not an easy way for politicians to speak about big problems that people feel and realize are there without being able to offer solutions. That maybe partly explains some of the backlash against expertise and some of the feeling that like they're being talked to and talked down to right. that these problems need to be resolved but aren't being addressed directly and the the lack of a solution isn't being addressed and being openly spoken about. The other I'm a big fan of Neil's generally. But one other thing I really liked about this piece is that the narratives made you care and will be mo much of what I remember, but it was backed up with a lot of numbers and other kinds of evidence about the difference of these companies and the facelessness of subcontracting, right? The idea that Apple can subcontract all these, in this case, I think it was mostly janitorial jobs they were focusing on, but um, but there are lots of other kind of subcontracting. And then essentially the company is immune to direct criticism. One of the reasons Kodak was more generous in its benefits plans and its idea of um, employee mobility was that everyone worked for Kodak. And so they were kind of the company owned their their employee uh, interests and values in a different way. And that was just a really striking feature of the disparity that Neil was putting his finger on. Yeah, I mean, through the anecdote of these two janitors, he's able to talk about all these different moving parts. I mean, it's not just about these different industries. It's about their HR practices. It's about like corporate structure more broadly, all of these kind of coming together. And I, I do think it does a good job also of not completely casting Apple as the villain in this. It, it Right. Apple was making cost-saving moves that were perfectly rational from a corporate standpoint, but they do have this um, this collateral consequence. Yeah, absolutely. My chatter today is about a fantastically interesting website uh, service that I learned about from a CNN article, though, although then it turned out that just to toot our own horn, Atlas Obscura had in fact written about it before. All right. CNN. On it. So it's called What Three Words? And it turns out that one of the big problems with, uh, with package delivery, with sort of finding people with, uh, you know, doing e-commerce in the world is that there are very few addresses in the world. Places like, you know, New Haven, Connecticut or Washington, D.C., people have addresses. They're well-mapped. They're easy to find. But in a lot of the world, that is not the case. 
And this company called What Three Words has done something brilliant, which is they have divided the entire planet up into 10, a 10 by 10 uh, meter grid, or maybe it's three by three meter grid, 10 foot by 10 foot grid um, with millions and millions and millions of 10 foot by 10 foot squares. And each of these 10 foot by 10 foot squares, they have given a unique three word address. And so that that three word name, it's very easy to store this data on a phone, even every address in the world. It's a tiny amount of data to keep all that information allows you to essentially reach any place in any spot in the world. And so now the country of Ivory Coast has just gone to this as its addressing system. The country of Mongolia went to it as its addressing system last year, which is, I guess, what occasioned Atlas writing about it. And it's brilliant. And so, for example, the Slate office we're sitting in uh, today is Garage Rice Goat. <laughs> so it has nothing to do with the actual address. Nothing at all. Like nothing no at all. word, no number yeah, that's associated no, with no. Uh, with yeah. the street of yeah. L on yeah. which we actually sit. Yeah. <laughs> Yale Law School. Yale Law School is Busy Capes Scale. It's excellent. New York Times is Mimic Hiking Album. <laughs> uh, the Slate Office. Actually, I can't tell if this is Slate Brooklyn or Slate DC. I'm not sure. Is Chairs Armed Cars? The Trump Hotel in DC. Votes blocks behave, which is a great one. That's hilarious. Are uh, they randomly generated? Did you? Say I think that they're already? randomly generated. Yeah. <laughs> they seem randomly generated. The Trump Tower, in New York, is deaf, gone, shall. Oh, maybe they're not randomly generated. Uh, ca- the Capitol building is is gosh, casual, stale. The Washington Monument is congratulations, fingernails, desk. This is excellent. Um, the Atlas Obscure Office is smiled, scans, strong. Uh, you could go on at You could go on forever. You could go on forever. <laughs> Literally. It's my house is Cared Dark Spoke. So if anyone wants to find out where my house is, it's at Cared Dark Spoke. And uh, you can go can you go to what3words.com and put in any place on the planet and figure out what it is. But it's just a brilliant technological solution, which also is just like very earwormy. That's so great. So is like FedEx and every other package delivery service, could they all use this? Sure. Presumably they could, they could all use this. Yeah. Yes. That's so cool. I like how it has no numbers, too. Right, right. Although it is very uh, English, Anglo-centric. That's true. And I guess also it doesn't tell you what you're near, right? Care Dark Spoke isn't next to Care Dark. That's true. I, you know, I didn't look whether whether that, whether that they do Yeah, do anyway. That. That's an interesting question. Probably it doesn't. Probably they're, probably they're not connected like that. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, before we get to credits, um, I want to say... Good word or two or seven about another podcast that you should be listening to. It's a podcast I listen to every week. It is it is my number one must podcast. Uh, maybe number two, actually. I should say that because I listen to this British soccer podcast. Number one, <laughs> oh, yes, but my let's number not two that out. My number two is uh, Hang Up and Listen, which is the Slate Sports podcast hosted by the wonderful Josh Levine and Stefan Fatsis. It is sports talk for people who aren't interested in kind of game scores, who want just a really, really, really smart, counterintuitive, slaty take on the world of sports. And you don't actually have to be much of a sports fan to care. I'm not even that much of a sports fan. It's just fascinating. Josh and Stefan both have such an interesting mind about sports, and they're so analytically rigorous. And they interview incredibly interesting people. One of my favorite things they did last year is they interviewed this I think it was a high school football coach who never punted. Oh, they yeah, were, I remember that. That was genius. It was genius. It was great. Yeah. And uh, he did an onside kick for every kick. And it was sort of like he had a whole strategy. And it really made sense. And you thought, well, everyone in football may be doing it wrong. This guy has a – he's got a whole take. And, and Josh and Stefan did a great interview with him. You should try to listen to Hang Up and Listen, which is post-Monday evening comes out. So add that to your diet of podcasts. That's the GabFest for today. The show is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher, Kevin Townsend, today hands over the GabFest baton, which is a panda shinbone electroplated with titanium. He hands that baton over to Izzy Road. Kevin, you have done a fantastic job. We are thrilled to have you. Thrilled to have you participate on the show today. And we're going to miss you and great good luck uh, in your future endeavors which is right now producing the podcast for the atlantic producing a rival podcast yeah we look forward to being outdone that's what's going to happen next exactly uh izzy road is now our researcher 
you should follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest. It really helps when you follow us on Twitter. It allows us to engage in conversation, to hear from you, share thoughts and ideas. And it's fun. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. And please get tickets to our Chicago and Boston shows if you're going to be in Chicago on October 25th or in Boston on December 6th. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.